And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. So today is a really fun episode because this is one of the rare times that I get to investigate a topic that I have really been excited about for a long period of time, and that is Howard Hughes. Now, he is possibly my favorite American character, uh, even though he was an actual person, but he was sure was a character, arguably one of the most important people of the 20th century. And we are going to talk about a very specific point in time in his life, and that is his time in Hollywood. He spent a lot of time, was extraordinarily influential in Hollywood. He owned one of the big five. He owned RKO Studios. He d- helped destroy the studio system, was influential in breaking down censors. Uh, he, he was just an incredibly influential person, and I, I'm very excited about this. There's a great book. I'm, uh, today I'm talking to Richard Jefferson, who, uh, Jesus, So today I'm talking to Jeffrey Richardson, who wrote an incredible book called Howard Hughes and the Creation of Modern Hollywood. And this is just a phenomenal book. He used all primary sources. I mean, just went right to the source. Uh, You know, old documents, uh, billing, invoices, letters, correspondence, all this stuff to, to really piece together this often overlooked part of Howard Hughes's life. So I just want to get right into this. I'm super excited about this. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being on the show today. Now, I want to first start out by saying, in a lot of ways, Howard Hughes really kind of, in my personal opinion, personifies Los Angeles for a lot of different reasons. Um, You know, he's an innovator, he's extraordinarily eccentric, and he has shaped American culture in ways that people don't even realize. And I'm afraid. So here's, I want to give a little um, a little disclaimer early on. I think you and I may be on opposite ends of the Hughes spectrum, but we're going to see if we can find a compromise here. I happen to love Howard Hughes. I'm into very strange things, uh, weird personalities, and there's no other, there's no other person in, I would say in American history, definitely in the 20th century, who is as interesting for several different reasons as Howard Hughes. I love his eccentricities. You know, both before, uh, you know, both before he went totally crazy and and before that, he was a very unique individual that I don't think there will ever be another person like him, you know, going forward, you know, and and not to mention influential. Your book is focuses solely on his time in Hollywood, but he reshaped Las Vegas. He completely changed their personality. He was a forefront in the aviation industry back when, you know, that was an original, new, cutting edge, very extraordinarily dangerous uh, profession. He's done a lot of different things. Uh, so I, I don't know where you fall into this. Well, wh- how did you get into Howard Hughes? What did what spoke to him to you about him? You know, as a historian, I, I think you 
you look for those stories that are often overlooked or misunderstood, and you want to focus on those because, you know, so much is put out there on various topics. You know, there, there's things, you know, I, I work at a Civil War museum, and gosh, how many Civil War books do you see get produced every single right, year? And right. movies and things like that. So as a historian, I always kind of struggled with, well, how am I going to find a subject that really people don't understand, that they don't know about? And when I started to learn about Howard Hughes, it was a lot of those things that you talked about. You know, you, you know about him, his time as an aviator. Um, you kind of know about the eccentricities at the end of his life, and you know about the time in Vegas. But I think his time as a motion picture producer is the one area of his life that is truly completely misunderstood. Um, there are countless biographies on Hughes, and some of them are absolutely fantastic. But they really kind of gloss over Hughes's tenure as a motion picture producer. Hmm. When you pick up standard histories of Hollywood, if he's mentioned at all, it's a passing reference. And it's a passing reference that often trivializes his contributions or the films that he made. So the more I started to learn about Hughes, his time as a motion picture producer, his time as a studio mogul, the more I realized how influential he was, how consequential the movies that he made were. Now, I'm not saying those movies were good. I'm not going to say they're bad either, although mm. they may fall more on the bad spectrum when you right. kind of view some of them. Right. But, but that doesn't mean they weren't important. And, and I think that's what really drew me to Hughes. And I felt that his time as a motion picture producer was something that really needed to be thoroughly examined because so much of his life overshadowed kind of the real person, his real contribution. So as a result of that, his time in Hollywood is completely misunderstood. So that's what really drew me to this particular story. I felt like for the first time, with access to documents that also had been overlooked, I would be able to tell this story and tell it accurately in ways that I don't think others would have the opportunity to do so. Well, I think that, I mean, you kind of hit it on the head. I mean, that's really what the book, uh, it's called Howard Hughes and the Creation of the Modern Hollywood. I mean, I think that's really what you do. I, you know, I mean, again, talking about my interest in Howard Hughes, uh, he's he, his influence, you know, basically as this kind of uh, eccentric character shows up in a lot of popular culture that I don't think people realize. So I, I love video games. He shows up in, in two of my favorite video games, which is Fallout New Vegas. There's a character named Mr. House who lives on the Hollywood, uh, I'm sorry, on the Las Vegas Strip. And he's basically this, a person in a cryogenic chamber who only speaks to the main character through this very large computer. Uh, and he looks, he's very Howard Hughes-esque, very similar background. Uh, he's a main part of that. Uh, the, there's a great video game called Bioshock, and Andrew Ryan is this big industrialist who builds a city underwater called Rapture, and he's based on Howard Hughes. He's in L.A. Noir. There's this great Simpsons episode of him. So as you, men you, know, as you mentioned, a lot of people focus on the kind of the crazier aspects of Howard Hughes. And, I, you know, I, I love this part not only because I live in L.A., but I found that I didn't realize how influential he really was in reshaping Hollywood. And I think to really understand how he was able to do that, you need to do a good job of going early on in his life. I wasn't aware of how Howard Hughes basically came came into his endless, seemingly endless fortune. Uh, so let's talk about how he kind of funded all of his escapades, for lack of a better term. 
the the source of his wealth dates almost solely to Hughes Tool. The Hughes Tool Company was established by his father in the early 20th century. And what his father ultimately did around 1909 was he patented a revolutionary drill bit. This drill bit, um, unlike previous bits that kind of ground the earth, it actually broke it away. And it ultimately became so successful that it was used in 75% of the oil wells around the world. So as but not just the United States, but as the world was moving towards oil, towards petroleum, and this really great kind of gold rush of the 20th century took place and finding these oil fields and getting the oil from the ground. One of the biggest problems uh, these wildcatters faced in the early 20th century was they knew the oil was beneath their feet. They just couldn't get to it. The, right, the technology yeah. of the day, the equipment of the day just did not allow. They would hit this really hard rock and they couldn't get past it. Their bits would break apart. They'd have all these issues. So Howard Hughes senior ultimately patented a revolutionary drill bit that took over and, and re- truly revolutionized the oil industry around the world. And it was from that particular bit that the Hughes Tool Company was founded. And the Hughes Tool Company became, there, there's, there was a quote that it was one of the finest moneymakers ever devised by the man, mind of man. Wow. It was just <laughs> fabulously successful. And the company just grew and grew and grew. And that ultimately was the seed to Howard Hughes's wealth. Now, Hughes used that wealth to expand into other industries, into other areas. Um, Hughes Aviation was one of the largest aviation companies in the 20th century, supplying military planes. Hughes Electronics as well, supplying government contracts. Um, speaking of aviation, Hughes was one of the largest owners, single owners of Transworld Airlines. And when he ultimately had to sell that uh, later on, he got somewhere, if I remember the number correct, it was like 560 million dollars. Um, the most money paid outright to a single individual in American history up to that point when he was forced to sell TWA. And he also owned the largest brewery in Texas. I mean, this was someone whose whose tentacles just stretched into so many different areas. But again, all of that wealth traced back to Hughes Tool Company. And when we talk about Howard Hughes, Sometimes we think of him as he was kind of had this Midas touch. Everything that he did turned to gold. And a lot of the areas that he was involved with, he ultimately managed to make a profit out of it, but nothing to the extent of Hughes tool. And the idea that really kind of made all of this work and Hughes micromanaged. And I think that became part of his persona throughout his career. He would micromanage things. He would, he would run things into the ground, somehow still managed to sell them for a profit. But when he was very young, when his father passed away, he was 18 years old. His mother had passed away two years previously. Right after that, he was able to get 100% control of Hughes Tool Company, and he learned the ins and outs of Hughes Tool, so he would truly understand the company. But within two years, he came to the realization that he didn't want to be um, meddling in his father's business, that he, he made a quote something to the effect of that his father was kind of you know, had worked for the Pony Express and Howard Hughes was simply being a postman. And the idea was, you know, his father had done so much, Hughes didn't feel like he would really be able to top his father when it came to the oil industry. So as a result, he stepped away from it. But he was smart enough to realize that if he let capable individuals run Hughes Tool Company, it would continue to grow. And by the time when he ultimately had sold Hughes Tool Company in, I believe, the early 1970s, it was estimated that it had provided him with 740 
$35 million in profits during his lifetime. And the top of that, he sold it for $150 million. Now, nowadays, you know, when you say $150 million, even when you say $745 million, you're like, oh, that's not too much. At the time, these were revolutionary numbers. I mean, Hughes was declared in 1968 by Fortune magazine to be one of two billionaires in the United States. And this was the first time Fortune ever declared that there was a billionaire in the United States. And it was declared that Hughes was the richest man in America in 1968. Second richest man was J. Paul Getty. We know that name today because of the Getty Institute in Los Angeles, a fine museum. But again, you know, that's you kind of have to put them in comparison. And when we're, we're talking about this and when we're using numbers and we say million or millions and we're like, gosh, that's not a lot. At the time, these numbers were astronomical. So to be the first American billionaire kind of helps put that in perspective. Well, and, and uh, you know, what's really important in this is, first of all, he inherited this, this gigantic company. He inherited 50%. Now, a key part of this is his other relatives. I think there's several other relatives who inherited the other 50%. At 18 years old, he had the foresight and, and, and you know, the drive, really. Uh, you know, some, some probably characterize it in other, in other terms. But he bought out his, his other family members. He bought out the other 50% to, to, to get the 100% control of Hughes Tool, which then translated into almost a billion dollars of wealth later on down the road. And, you know, at some time, in his family definitely, at the time, believed this to be a pretty callous move because it was recently after his father passed away. Uh, but it showed what a shrewd businessman he really was at such an early age. To me, that's phenomenal. Uh, the Hughes Tool Company actually started as the Sharp Hughes Tool Company. Uh, Howard Hughes Sr. actually had a partner who helped put up a lot of the money that ultimately allowed the company company to grow. Uh, when Walter Sharp, Howard Hughes Sr.'s partner, died in 1912, uh, Big Howard, as he was known, Howard Hughes Sr., did the same thing. He, he bought out all of the interest and got 100% of the company. And he said to his young son, don't ever have any partners. They're nothing but trouble. And that really became kind of the MO of Hughes for the rest of his life. We think of nowadays that these great Titans, um, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, Bill Gates, uh, Elon Musk, you know, these people that we think of, these individuals that are household names, but they're all at the forefront of publicly owned companies. So they are the largest shareholders, you know, even Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, they're, they're the largest shareholders, but they're the largest shareholders of a, a publicly owned company. What Hughes did throughout almost all of his life, the majority of his money were in companies that he owned 100%. And that's what's really different. These were private companies. And as a result of that, there were many ramifications to that. One, he was able to have a lot more control. He didn't have to report earnings. Um, so you never really knew exactly how much he was worth. Um, but it gave him the flexibility to use his money and to do things in ways that would have been different if he'd have been at the head of a publicly um, traded company. TWA, which I mentioned earlier, is the perfect example. Now, that was a publicly traded company, and it was always a headache for him because he'd, he owned somewhere around 70-something percent of the company, and he always had to deal with regulators and things like that. So, you know, Hughes Tool Company was owned 100% by Howard Hughes. He realized early on that he would not be able to work with his relatives. So as a result of that, he put his money up, was able to get a loan. He bought them out and was able to use that Hughes Tool to just grow and grow his empire, which became one of the largest privately held wealth that we've ever seen in the history of the United States. Well, it's pretty interesting. I mean, because it's a good thing that the that the Hughes tool developed this drill bit to get oil long before Jed Clampett was able to basically just shoot a shotgun into his backyard and get oil. Because had that happened, the Hughes tool may not even exist. I think we can both agree on that point. Uh, the, the second part of that is, which is kind of interesting, as you're telling the story, it's interesting to me that 
Howard, Big Howard had a partner who put up most of the money for Hughes Sharp Tool. Uh, he dies. So with the money that they've generated together, um, Howard's dad, Big Howard, buys out the, his partner. And then Hughes inherits the money and takes a loan out to buy the rest of the company. So in a, essentially, Howard Hughes inherits the biggest company of all time and didn't have to really do anything except be lucky enough to be born uh, <laughs> to a guy whose partner put up the money for the largest company of all time. I mean, that's uh, those are like one in a gazillion odds for that one. Absolutely. And what you normally see kind of in situations like this is, is the, the young kind of the inheritor of the company either stays in that particular field, runs that company, becomes associated just as his father did with that business, that enterprise, or they branch off into their own. Um, and Hughes took that they uh, that path of he, he really didn't want to run his father's company. So he looked at other areas where he could make his mark. And very early on, he identified three ambitions. He said he wanted to be the world's best golfer. He wanted to be the world's top aviator. And he wanted to be the world's most famous motion picture producer. Now, a list like that kind of shows his background because, you know, you're, you're not going to be the, the greatest motion picture producer, the top aviator, if you don't have the financial resources to do so. Or the golfer, for that matter. There's a lot of doctors. You have to, you have to practice every day to be a golfer. I mean, it's not like being, you know, there's other, there's other sport professions you could be naturally talented at. Golf, you really have to work at. You do, and it's interesting. Of those three, he was able to achieve two of them. The one he wasn't able to achieve was being the world's greatest golfer. So <laughs> it kind of shows you that's not that easy, even right. with money and the, the background that he had. So, you know, Hughes really, again, when you look back at his career and you look at how many people would describe the way he meddled in business, the way he micromanaged, the way he kind of ran business, not always to the best of what others would say, but to the way Hughes wanted to do so, the, the smartest thing he ever did was walk away from Hughes' tool and allow it to continue to grow. And the numbers became astronomical. I mean, the, the way that the company grew over time is just really hard to put into numbers. But I mean, sales in 1924, $2.9 million. That's when he assumed control of the company. In 1956, they were $117 million. I mean, the numbers just continued to grow and grow. And Noah Dietrich, who became Hughes' financial advisor later on in life, you know, made a snide comment at one point, basically, that if we can always keep Howard away from Hughes' tool, he simply can't spend the amount of money that he is making. And he certainly tried to. I mean, he put a lot of money into his motion pictures, but he had so much money coming in, he couldn't spend it all. Well, I mean, this this is these are this is the part of the story that was probably the most disappointing to me because I being being someone who kind of casually knew about Howard Hughes, I was under the impression he built his empire. And, you know, you could argue that he did build his empire, but he didn't really because the seeds of his empire were sown by his father and they were the type of, you know, what he was able to reap from Hughes' tool was such a wealth that he did not build, you could not, it's easy to look good when you have that kind of money. You can't really screw it up. You'll never go bankrupt. There's, when you're the, when you, when you have that kind of money, nothing short of, of the, you know, the stock market collapse, even, even like the 1929 stock market crash couldn't really deplete him of the types of funds that he had. As you mentioned, these were all privately owned companies doing a type of industry that was going to continue well into you know, the 21st century. Uh, so it, it, this, he became much less impressive in my eyes. And, and as we talk about some of the things that he did, you know, especially with motion pictures, he kind of screwed up for 20 years and, and was just able to exist and do these fantastic things because he had an endless supply of money. 
uh, which is just insane to me. But but also you mentioned the smartest thing he did was walk away. I don't know that it was smart. It seems more like hubris, like his pride. This is one of the few examples in history where a man's pride actually was a benefit to him instead of being some sort of cautionary tale against pride, you know. Him walking away was more him wanting to pave his own path uh, to be his own man, not so much like, hey, you know what? I think I'm not really right for Hughes Tool. Maybe we should get some other people in there. You know what I mean? There's a very important distinction there. So while it turned out to be the smartest thing, I think it was probably the most uh, self-centered thing that he did. It just happened to work out in the long run for him. Uh, These were the things I was a little disappointed at this, but nonetheless, these sort of these sort of drives uh, really put him into the mindset of, I want to do these three things. I've got the resources to do it. Uh, so let's go get them. Uh, you know, there's lots of things written about his aviation. I think I would love to see your follow-up book on his golfing career because I think that is a, that is an extraordinarily <laughs> overlooked uh, aspect of his life. I want to see that as the sequel. You're exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I would say is, when it came when it came to golf, the one thing that he did, he was one of the first individuals to tape his swing, so oh, he could okay. actually use the motion picture camera to tape his swing, so he could evaluate and improve it. One of the first people to do so, and obviously that's very common now. So I think I have just I, I've written the book. That's it right there. Right. So we're, we're done. Okay, okay, fair enough. It's a, more like an essay, like a couple page essay. Um, <laughs> but I like it. I think that you know, I think there's more to it. I'd love to hear about this drive. Like, why did he pick golf? I'm personally interested in that. Um, but so let's talk about his movie industry. How did he? Con- of become interested in films to the point where he wanted to um, go and become the top movie producer. Is this kind of one of those things where as a kid he saw movies and just wanted to go into that and had the money to do it? Or was there something a little deeper involved there? Well, if you take all three of his ambitions, I mean, top golfer, top aviator, world's most famous motion picture producer, that sounds like something an 18-year-old kid would say. Um, you know, that's, <laughs> you know that, that's right in there. I mean, yeah. nowadays it might be a little bit different. Uh, yeah. But remember, we're talking about the 1920s here. So it's not too surprising when you kind of look at it and you think about this was an 18-year-old kid with unlimited resource deciding, well, what do I want to do with my life if I don't want to run my father's company? Um, and when it came to motion pictures, you know, Hughes was quoted in a, a newspaper saying that really he he like everyone now and you know especially back then was just kind of enamored by motion pictures and he would go to them and he said even when he thought they were cheesy he still thought they were enjoyable and when he was looking around to make his mark he thought well you know a lot of these motion pictures that i see they're not very good and i you know with that hubris that you mentioned he kind of just said you know i think i can make movies that are better and it can't be that difficult right you know you just go to hollywood and you know you become a producer and you start making motion pictures so for him it was just trying to identify a feel just like his father had done earlier, where can I make my mark? And now, I will say pictures, this, I, I've had that thought before, so I understand. And people today <laughs> still have that. Like, how hard can it be? You go to Hollywood, you make some movies. It's, I mean, I had one of my friends, I'll never forget this, he's one of my best friends now, but I met him, you know, and he, we were both, like, working low-level jobs on, on, a, on, a, on a TV show, and he said, you know, in a year, I'm going to be writing... Uh, you know, I'm going to be writing for a television show. Like he thought it was just so easy to walk out of college, get a writing job as a staff writer on a television show. And, you know, I, I know that he doesn't listen to the show, so I can say he still has yet to achieve that dream 12 years later. <laughs> uh, you know, and he's been working at it every time. That The amount of difficulty to do this on your own merits is incredibly difficult. Um, you know, so so I understand that thought. Hughes, is, Hughes and I are very similar is the point I'm trying to make. Yes, 
so there's there's a great story that that's likely not true, but I included it in the book <laughs> because I think it, it it makes a good point that when he arrived in Hollywood, and this is around 1924, he goes and he meets with Louis B. Mayer of MGM, Metro Goldwyn Mayer. And Louis B. Mayer ran the studio, and Hughes said to Mayer, "Well, how do I make a movie?" And Mayer says, "Well, you know, you, you get you get a story, you get some equipment, you get some actors, and you go out and start filming. You know, pretty straightforward." And he said, "You know, there's even some studios out there that you know you can rent and you can." rent space at and they'll help you make the movie and he was kind of looked at mayor and said well you know how about i just buy mgm you know and the idea behind that was you know again he had these resources to do so now that that story is likely apocryphal uh, he didn't know that best we can tell he didn't know mayor at that particular time and Hughes wouldn't have had the wealth at that time to buy a studio like that that changes later in his life but again for hughes it, it was a little bit different because his wealth was different because he had so much money he was when he arrived in hollywood able to kind of look around and say okay well how do i do this and you know, just just as you pointed out to his first kind of venture into it. And again, this is uh, 1925. In 1926, he teams up with an actor by the name of Ralph Graves. Now, Ralph Graves had been associated with Hughes's father. Hughes's father, like many before him, kind of had had some interest in Hollywood and had gone there and met some starlets and met some stars. And Ralph Graves was one of these individuals, uh, named kind of lost to history, but uh, had a notable career in the early 20th century. And Ralph Graves ran into Howard Hughes on a golf course and heard that Hughes was trying to make his way into the industry. And he said, I got this great idea. You know, if you finance it, we will make a blockbuster picture. It'll be absolutely fantastic. So Hughes puts up the money. And as they're going along, Ralph Graves comes back to him and says, well, I need more money. Hughes, you know, has it, says, sure, absolutely. Keeps throwing money at the project. And by the time it's finished and it goes to get screened, it's absolutely atrocious. Um, Hughes takes it to a few different distributors, takes it to a few other people within the industry. And they all come back to him and say, this movie's terrible. We we wouldn't distribute it. I don't think you're going to be able to ultimately exhibit it. And it kind of just shows, you know, even if you have all of these resources, it's not guaranteed for success. And as the story goes, and this is probably true, that Hughes burned all of the available copies of it because he was so disappointed with the film. So it really looked like when he first arrived in Hollywood, he would be yet another one of these kind of side notes. He would be someone who came there, tried to make their mark, and then quickly uh, had failure and turned around and left. But as we see, he decided, you know what, I'm not going to let this failure define me. I'm going to continue to go at it. And ultimately, very slowly, he started to learn more and more about the industry, um, continued to fund movies. But what he's doing, which is different at the time, is he is funding these movies solely by himself. Now, he's establishing, he reorganized a company that he had that began as a drill bit company that his father had assumed. Um, so he reorganizes this company to produce motion pictures. And whereas other great, when we kind of think of independence of the period, and that's not a true accurate description to describe other producers at that time, like David O. Selznick, um, individuals like that but well, let me let me stop you for one second here because w one of the things that's extraordinarily important to note here is this is 1925 1926 is the first um, talkie the first sound film so we're talking about essentially the silent era f f sound films don't really come into prominence for the next couple of years so we're talking about him he's producing silent films in the era of the studio system so there's basically five gigantic studios uh, the big five, and then there's three small ones. 
And the big five are Paramount, Fox, MGM, Warner Brothers, and RKO. Universal, Columbia, and United Pictures are the smaller ones. United Pictures was made up by gigantic silent stars at the time. I believe Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin all had a stake in United Artists, if I'm getting my history correct. So there, there's, yep. there's, there's a huge system in place. There are, there are, there are safeguards, essentially safeguards in place for these studios to make sure that they are, they are the ones making a profit. You mentioned these independent producers. So there are people producing films independently. But but everyone has to go through the studio system where it's essentially vertically integrated, meaning that these studios are both funding the film and they own the theater chains to distribute them. So an independent producer actually has an extraordinarily difficult time unless they team with one of these major studios in order to even get their picture shown. It's not like today where you have theater change and you can kind of get any movie in there. This is an extraordinarily insular community that was difficult to break in, even with large amounts of money. And even with those large amounts of money, as you mentioned, this movie called Swell Hogan, I believe you're talking about here, doesn't even exist anymore because he burned all the copies. But he couldn't even take that movie and really have an easy path to distribution. So this is an incredibly difficult, almost hostile environment that he's working in and all these other independent producers you're talking about. They're all working in this exact same structure. And they're working, they're directly tied to studios. So where they may have their own individual production company, that production company has a a distribution contract with one of the major studios. Um, What you described, I I think everyone knows what a monopoly, one particular company that dominates an entire industry. This was an oligarchy where it's these Mm -hmm. five corporations that are dominating the entire industry. And everyone had to work through them. And you hit upon the key thing to their success, and it was the exhibition. They controlled all of the major theaters and all of the major markets. And as a result of that, they were able to recoup 70 to 80 percent of all industry revenue. So if you wanted to make a movie and you wanted it to be successful, you needed to get it into one of these corporations' theaters. And if you did not abide by their rules, if you didn't play Mm -hmm. the game, so to speak, Mm -hmm. they just refused to show your movie. And that's what made independent production virtually impossible during this particular time. Right. And, and, and you know, it, it's... in having a failure at that, you know, no, one, no one wants to show a, a crappy movie. I mean, even the studio system had deals in place with their exhibitors that you basically had to buy a bunch of their movies to show them. So you, they would tie in a great movie with a bunch of crappy movies and you had to buy all of them if you were an exhibitor. Um, so there, there's, there's lots of safeguards in place here. So it makes what Hughes is doing extraordinarily difficult, but yet undaunted, he goes into this. And, and so I believe, you know, he was hands off during Swell Hogan. Uh, he realized the mistake behind that. And then he got extraordinarily more involved in the upcoming productions that he was, that he was financing. He basically was like a sponge. I mean, he was very naive when he comes into the industry, knows, you know, as we all do, oh, you know, how you make a movie, it must be pretty simple. Uh, but he really was hands-off. But as, as his first handful of movies, um, Swell Hogan, then Everybody's Acting, Two Arabian Nights, uh, The Racket, The Mating Call, these are some of the first movies that he made. He was learning more and more about how movies were made. Uh, but Mary Astor, who was a star on one of his early films, Two Arabian Nights, said when Hughes showed up onto the set, he couldn't understand where the fourth wall was. He wanted to know why all the buildings only had three walls. Um, So it kind of just showed he didn't understand how motion pictures were made. But by the time the 1920s were coming to an end, Hughes, um, again, maybe with that hubris, maybe he was just simply naive. He by the end of the decade, came to believe that he could direct and make a motion picture just about as good as anyone else in Hollywood. And that's what he ultimately set out to do with his first seminal picture, Hell's Angels. 
Well, and so before that, what's kind of interesting here, and this is where, you know, this is, I think, a key point here. You can come in with a bunch of money, you have failures, and people can kind of dismiss you. You can have a ton, a ton of money, and as we're going to talk with Hell's Angels, he sunk a lot of money into it. One of the key parts of this story, and maybe added to the hubris, was that he had some successes. I mean, two Arabian nights, he had a really good sense to know that um, it wasn't uh, that, that it wasn't this big epic roma- romance. It was a comedy, and and he insisted that it be a comedy and shot it as such, and then it became it became a hit. It was actually, I believe, you said it was nominated for its, the first Academy Award, 1929, with the first Academy Awards. And they were, uh, he was nominated for Best Director and Best Comedy Picture. The second film, The Racket, that you mentioned was about gangsters. This is, you know, this was kind of off, borderline taboo topic at the time. But Hughes wanted to talk about real life. This is important because that was also nominated. It lost to another to another um, to another movie, but he's having success. He's his 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 sense of comic timing is is understanding what a movie needs to be, and being nominated is. I mean, it was much. I think it was much later than when the movies came out. But this is the these sort of little successes are what lead him to believe that he can in fact do a major motion picture. You know, Hell's Angels. Correct me if I'm wrong. Here was the 1929 or 1930 equivalent of like a Marvel movie, essentially. I mean, it had tons of, of action, tons of special effects. He was shooting it in the sky. It was about airplanes. This is not easy to do. It is not cheap to do, but he believed he could do it based on these previous successes. And Two Arabian Nights, which was released in 1927, Lewis Milestone was the director. And Milestone actually won the Best Director for Comedy at the First Academy Awards. The First Academy Awards in 1929 uh, looked at films from 27 and 28, and it was the first time, and I think the only time, that they split up the Best Director into both drama Mm, and comedy. So Lewis Milestone won that. And years later, when Hughes was giving a very rare interview. Um, he didn't give interviews later later in his life, but he was giving a, a rare interview for um, Life magazine. And the person writing it was sitting down talking to Hughes, and you, you see the notes that still survive to this day. And he the original draft included this note that Lewis Milestone won the Best Director Academy Award for this. And Hughes said, well, what's that have to do with the picture? Right. And he said, well, that, that's kind of a big deal, you know, that he right. won this. And Hughes was like, well, no, it was because of my contributions, basically, is what Hughes was saying. So he, he dismissed that, you know, he dismissed what the director was doing. The idea, just as you kind of hit at, was he was learning more and more about the industry. And one other thing that just I would point out is he also was thinking that making money when it came to motion pictures was simple, that the more money that you threw into a motion picture, the more money you would get out of it. So mm-hmm. if you made a small picture and it had a little bit of profit, well, if you made a big picture, it would have a big profit. But one of the things that I try to do in the book is get beyond these myths. And, and I use corporate documents and other types of things to really have actual figures to kind of show when Hugh said this movie made a tremendous amount of money, that in many instances it actually lost money. So, But this was the myth that was starting to build up around Howard Hughes, that he was this young kid with a lot of money who had this golden touch, who was willing to do just about anything to make the types of motion pictures that he thought audiences would like. Well, and I forgot to mention this. This is a key point. You do, it's all primary sources, basically, that you use. I, I don't know how you got access to some of this stuff, but it is, so this is, everything in your book is factual. Uh, you know, I mean, you even talk about, you know, with Hell's Angels, how many rolls of, how many feet of film he shot versus how many feet of film he used. Uh, I mean, this is incredible. I believe, let me see here if I'm, if I'm correct here, I believe with Hell's Angels, so basically Howard Hughes took over, he decided to direct Hell's Angels, and it's this, it's this 
basically he goes back to his love of aviation and wants to um, make this sweeping epic about about aviators and with these gigantic scenes where they're using real airplanes doing dogfights in the air and you have to film it and choreograph it and all this stuff. He, if I'm understanding correctly, he shot basically a hundred to one, meaning for every foot of film that ends up in the movie, he shot one hundred feet of film. I mean, this, these are like astronomical numbers for the time because film is not cheap. It's it's extraordinarily expensive to produce and to develop. So he was he sunk a lot of money into this just from a from a film standpoint. Is, are those numbers right? Yeah, I mean, 20,000 feet of film for a close-up of uh, an airplane valve, 20 feet are going to end up in the final film. And you can find examples <laughs> like that throughout. And the way, the reason he was able to do that was because it was his money. He had no one else. You know, typically this is where the producer steps in. And the producer says, you're off script, um, you're, you're not staying on schedule, you're going over budget. But Howard Hughes was the producer. So if he wanted 100 takes, he was going to get 100 takes. And that's what he would ultimately do. It was his money. He was throwing it into it. I I mean, you're talking about just another astronomical figure here for this particular uh, movie, which was about World War One aviators. He acquired 87 planes at a cost of five hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Right. That meant Howard Hughes owned the largest private air force in the world at this particular time. I mean, was just buying all of these old World War One uh, planes. He would get some that he couldn't find. He would repurpose others to make them look like that. So he had locations across um, California, including in Oakland, the present-day site of the Los Angeles International Airport, that he leased out to have various bases so he could do this. I mean, he just decided that this was going to be his epic. This was going to be the movie that was going to ultimately put him on the map. Now, we've talked about other films that did well, but Hughes still hadn't made his true epic. He still was kind of thought of as this young up-and-comer, so he wanted to make that grand epic film, and Hell's Angels was going to be the one that did it, and he was going to throw as much money as much time into it to make it that film well and and i don't want to spend too much time on this film because i want to get to some other things but i want to mention a couple of key things here because i thought this was my favorite part of the book was reading about the making of this movie so essentially you know to give him some credit he did have two directors on the film he meddled so much he ended up taking over directing uh, with aerial footage, they realized the importance of clouds, actual clouds, and they chased them all over Southern California. Uh, he, uh, they went to, I think you mentioned they went to Oakland to find more clouds. S- on the way to Oakland, a pilot was killed. Several people died during the making of this, of this movie. There was one stunt that even the stunt director wasn't going to do. They ended up paying a guy to do it. Um, and they had a mechanic on board, and the pilot ends up bailing out of this dangerous stunt, but the mechanic ends up getting killed. Uh, this is, I mean, this is, it's its insane. Hughes himself gets injured during the making of this movie. He fractures his uh, skull and his cheekbone. And then when the movie is complete, I think they had three dates of, of a premiere date in 1929. It took forever to, to, to edit. But the premiere was unbelievable, I guess. And and again, I wasn't there. But the, the, the premiere was unbelievable. It takes place at the Sid Grom, the Grauman Chinese Theater. This is a couple years after the Grauman's Chinese Chinese Theater is even uh, built, and it's it's basically like a ticker tape parade. Uh, so this huge premiere. So this was, I mean, this was essentially the water world of its time. I mean, he sunk so much money that it was, I, I imagine it had to have been impossible to recoup the amount of money he sunk into this extraordinary epic and just in a, a fantastic premiere. I mean, he really lived the life. This was, this was just an amazing story about his first film. And, and the one thing that I would just add to that is 
as during the making of one of those initial premieres that they had established for, that's when, as you mentioned earlier, the sound revolution really took over the industry. Oh, so they had right, to go back and right. scrap all of the that, interior yeah. scenes because they were all made for silent. And Hughes realized his, his, his epic, his swan song was going to be obsolete before it was even um, released. So right. they had to go back and this film took years to make three years to make around somewhere. He claimed around $4 million. Um, my research proves that it was more around uh, two to $3 million. Uh, but, you know, again, he would go back and no matter what, he's going to scrap all of that old material. And of course, the original star of the movie was a Norwegian born actress. She gets mm -hmm. replaced by Jean Harlow, who becomes one of the great stars of yep, the period. Yep, yep. Um, and yeah, look, no money. Nothing was too small for this film, including the premiere, which was with this, one of the greatest kind of premieres in the history of early Los Angeles. Right. And the tickets to it is $11 a ticket, which is actually expensive nowadays uh, to, to a premiere. It, I for, totally forgot about that aspect that is huge because this happened in a lot uh, during the silent era you had lots of people who um, were foreign actors and actresses who you didn't they didn't need to even speak English and then all of a sudden the sound comes in and their career's over because they, they have a heavy accent they don't they, they don't sound like how their image looks on film so it gives a whole different look and feel for what the characters they're playing I mean it was a, it was a nightmare but Hughes has all the money reshoots the entire film uh, not the entire film but a lot of the film um, with New act with new actors, especially all the scenes with with the, the previous actress who was the lead, uh, just an absolute debacle. A great great story. I love that story. Uh, so let's move on to one of the key things here is his one of the the reason why Hughes is revolutionary in the film industry is not because he was dumping a bunch of money into movies. People have been doing that forever. But his battle to change this studio system, the, the thing we mentioned before, this ironclad, this oligarchy of corporations owning the industry, he kind of shatters this. And I believe the first shots fired in that is a movie called Scarface, which is about um, gangsters. It's about Al Capone. And this kind of irks some of the censorship boards. There's a censorship board, the MPPA, I believe it is. I forget how many P's are in MPPDA. MPPDA. And so he kind of draws their ire from this film being a little too violent. And he goes to battle. And this is an organization that's basically created by the film companies and essentially designed to censor their own before anyone else could censor them, I believe. And he goes to battle with them. These are kind of the first shots fired in what turns out to be this extraordinarily epic battle that ends the studio system. Because the, the this oligarchy of these big studios, the, the one thing they really worried about, because they were making all of this money, they were dominating the industry, they were worried that the federal government would ultimately step in and enact antitrust laws across the industry, but they would mm -hmm. break them up. And that scared them more than anything else. That would destroy their monopoly that they had on the industry. So they didn't want any controversy. And they thought the best way to avoid controversy was to not make controversial films. So they put very strict rules in place. And in 1922, they established the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, the MPPDA. Will Hayes, uh, the former head of the Republican Party, former postmaster general, took over. He came to be known as the Napoleon of the screen. And the idea was there were certain rules that all producers had to follow. Mm -hmm. You had to limit controversy. So you couldn't depict, you couldn't make criminals be sympathetic. Um, you couldn't show killings graphically. Firearms had to be their use had to be restricted. Uh, when it came to sex, the sanctity of marriage and home had to be up 
upheld. You could not infer that lower forms of sexual relations were in any way common. Nudity was never permitted. There was actually nudity in films prior to this particular time. So these very strict rules were in place because they didn't want anything to be controversial, because they didn't want the federal government to step in and enact antitrust laws. So that's what Hughes, when you mentioned earlier that you know, he wanted to make really realistic films, even from the outset of his career. Well, how can you make a realistic film when you have to show a husband and wife sleeping in two separate beds? You know, so it's this idea of this is what he was up against. So when he decided he was going to make a gangster film, his gangster film was going to be as realistic, as violent as possible. And that went against one of the biggest tenets of the industry, which was making something that was controversial. Well, and, and the thing that, that I think is important there, it's not only about sex and violence. This was about tone and message. Even, you know, as you mentioned, gang, gangsters, outlaws, um, the people who were uh, the bad guys couldn't look sympathetic. You couldn't really, uh, they, they couldn't be the heroes. There was no such thing as an anti-hero movie at this time. The so, cops always had to win. The cops always had to get the bad guy. Always. The bad guy could not get away with it. <laughs> right. So, I mean, their, their hand, I mean, talk about, I mean, that's just crazy to think about nowadays where essentially this censorship censorship board developed by the people who are making the movies are essentially driving your creativity on the movie tone message itself and the storylines. I mean, that's pretty crazy at the time. So Hughes fights against us with Scarface and essentially, just to, to sum it up, makes some concessions so that there's several versions of the film that are released, but he has to get it cleared, especially in New York, which is notoriously difficult to pass the censorship board, but also has the largest number of people who want to see the movies. It's a big battle. Um, but he he makes his concessions, and then then he actually leaves Hollywood for for a while, almost ten years. He goes and does he all the aviation things. He sets records, um, becomes a national hero, and then comes back to movies in 1939. This is you know right before World War II, right at the end of the Great Depression. And he kind of comes in, and this is where, I think, this is really where the beginning of his march towards at least historical significance begins, in my mind, with the making of the movie The Outlaw, and the, the, just the making of the movie, the casting of Jane Russell, uh, essentially, I mean, you kind of make the argument, I, mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but you kind of make the argument in the movie that she was cast specifically for her bust size uh, and and that is used in marketing <laughs> for the movie. So it's one of the first times where you know sex is used to market a movie, much to the chagrin again of the censorship boards, which still exist. So this is kind of where he you know he he kind of took the shots early, had a loss, comes back, regroups, comes back, and this is kind of really the march towards ending the studio system with the outlaw, in in my opinion. When you look back on these films, what's kind of amazing is they seem so passe today. Um, you know, if you were to watch <laughs> right. this movie, you would go, what, what's the problem? I mean, you know, she, she's bending over and she's got a, a low scooped blouse and she bends over. Gosh, you know, right. you see worse in commercials on, on broadcast networks today and things right. like that. You need them in these commercials nowadays. They're not even, they're not even optional anymore. You yeah. Know? You know, I mean, it's but back then it, it was it was controversial. I mean, um, when they the MPPDA first screened the film in 1941, The Outlaw, they said, they had never seen anything quite so unacceptable as the shots of the breast of Jane Russell. But again, when you go back and watch it now, you know, you're like, well, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. So, so we always have to put ourselves in the era, you know, as right, historians. Right. And when we talk about these things, we have to remember, we can't look at them in modern eyes. What was it like in the 1930s and in the 1940s? So they had even made films, even they had, their censorship increased. And the censorship boards, there was the one we had talked about, which was by the 
the studios themselves, but there was also censorship boards at state levels, at local levels, and all of them had to approve a film. So the the federal, not the federal, my apologies, the, the one produced by the studios actually strengthened their kind of censorship in the 1930s, where they actually required all films to have a seal of approval after 1934. And if you watch old movies, you see that pop up. It's one of the first things mm-hmm. you see. You see this big this seal, right. and it says approved by the so-and-so. All movies had to have that after 1930, and that was, again, to make sure they were abiding by those rules that they had established when it came to sex, violence, tone, and all of those types of things. And Hughes's movie did not abide by any of those. You also had to get all of your advertising approved. Right. And Hughes <laughs> would have these images of Jane Russell in a, in a hayfield, which or in a haystack, which was not a scene actually from the movie. She's got this low cut blouse. She's holding a gun, and he would use some really kind of kind of just some really great taglines for this. I mean, one of them was, you know, how would you like to tussle with Russell is a common one. The one I like, um, what are the two great reasons for seeing Jane Russell's rise to stardom? And then much smaller, it says she's daring and exciting. And then this one, this double entendre is just, you can't even explain this any other way. One tagline simply said, here they are. And that was it. That's all it said. So, you know, he's, he's really pushing the boundaries on screen and then off screen of how you go about producing and promoting these movies um, to really what he said to try to make a movie that was realistic. But in reality, it was really, you know, you could look at it. He was simply trying to exploit, you know, sex and this idea behind Jane Russell for that film. Well, yeah. And the one I, the one I love uh, is, is he did a sky writing where he basically uh, <laughs> d- did two circles with dots in the middle. You know, it, you know it's funny, even today. That would almost be a little risque, in my opinion. <laughs> I, I can only imagine in the 1930s doing that, but it's really funny. But it shows here's, I mean, this is essentially pushing the envelope for the sake of pushing the envelope. I'm not, in my younger days, I was a fan of it. You know, Family Guy always did that. Uh, as I've grown older, it's kind of tiresome just to be doing things without any creative force behind it other than to push the envelope. I don't really think. That's, I don't know, to me, that's not always a great motivator. However, in this particular case, what he was doing was essentially trying to break down the, I always think censorship is, is a bad thing. And, and he really was using this to, to break it down. He was marketing sex as, you know, it's a very vapid way, uh, very um, exploitive way to, to market a movie to get people to see it. But these are the techniques people use today. I mean, this is the stuff people are still using today, which was unheard of at the time. As you mentioned, advertising had to be cleared. It wasn't the movie that had to be cleared. You had to clear advertising with these boards. So he was really pushing the envelope here. And, and you know, on that respect, I think he was doing good work because it ends up with the destruction of the censorship boards, um, you know, as they, as they were. Now, this is, it's interesting because the New York censor board, it took five years to clear this. So essentially, the way you describe it in your book is he was, Almost every single day, at least every working day, was getting notes, making changes in the film, resubmitting the film. They had to watch the film again and then give him more notes. And this went on for five years. Is that kind of correct? And, and yes, I mean, it, what it was was, you know, he would make small tweaks 
and then he would send it back to them and they would say no and they would go back and forth but again this is where his wealth comes back to the picture no one else could be able to do this right, no other right. kind of producer would put their money out there and then have the film just languish for years so the film is going to go out it's going to have one premiere in 1943 and then it's going to sit on the shelf for 44 it doesn't get shown at all 45 it doesn't get shown at all and then ultimately it's going to take several years um 1946 is when it's finally going to start getting premiered around the country but no one else would be able to do that because they couldn't they would have too much money tied up into their investment to just let it sit on the shelf but because Hughes had so much money he was able to fight battles that no one else simply was able to do and that's what was so revolutionary about it was he was fighting the battle in ways that only he would be able to do he actually filed a lawsuit against the the industry censors basically saying that they had rescinded their seal of approval. They didn't have the right to do so was the first time anyone had ever taken them to court. He lost, but he's slowly chipping away at this kind of facade that they had when it came to censorship. I mean, he essentially was just being as annoying as possible in order to get them to be tired of dealing with him, to let him get away with the stuff he wanted to get away with. I mean, I don't want to to make it too simple, but it seems like he essentially, like that's really what he was doing. I mean, they were telling him what to do. He wears them down. Yeah. Yeah. From, from, yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny the things he did get away with because, I mean, it it wasn't in a, I mean, I guess you mentioned that it was required, but you know, he's, they're telling him to do stuff and he's just not, he's saying he's going to do it and then just doesn't do it. Uh, and, and then ends up, I think he ends up releasing some of the films anyway. I mean, he, he you know, he says he's going to change the ending, but the, I forget which movie it was, but he, he changes the ending. He tells them he's going to change the ending, and, it, and they agree, you will pass the censorship board only if you use the ending that you've reshot for this movie. This might have been The Outlaw. Then he shows it was Scarface. Oh, Scarface! I'm so sorry. It was Scarface, right? Yeah. And then he shows the original ending that he shot uh, at a premiere, and basically says, "Look, people loved it. It's fine. <laughs> like, let me clear it." Essentially, right? Yeah, I mean, he, what he's doing is is he's pushing the envelope because, you know, he could do it. He had the money to do so, and if his film didn't show, no big deal. He had a lot more money. Right. He would go on and make his next film. And also because he was an independent producer and not kind of representing a studio, you know, he would put out one film every few years. You mentioned he disappeared for 10 years and then came back to the industry. So he didn't have to worry about juggling 20 films at a time. He would have one film that he would shower his complete attention to, would want it to be shown exactly as he said. But what was also interesting about Hughes was he would say one thing and do another. You know, he would say, I'm refusing to cut this film. He would make it very clear in the press that what you're going to see is the film exactly as I shot it. And that same day, he's making cuts. It's a variation. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to manipulate both sides. He's trying to manipulate one side to get his way with as much as possible and then tell the other side, listen, I didn't make any changes because I didn't have to. I fought them. I'm this big advocate for free speech. So he's really great great at making this persona not just about the movies but about him as well and that's adding to this aviation he's fighting the government when it comes to you know um government contracts in World War II, Hughes is becoming so much larger than life during this particular time that he becomes almost a bigger star than any person that he puts on screen. I mean, it's it's incredible uh, what he was doing, though, as you mentioned, working both sides. That is essentially, besides entertainment, which that happens in entertainment, that tactic has been used in politics 
forever. It goes on all the time with every politician. You you say you're not going to make any concessions, then you go with a bunch of people, you make a compromise, and you come back out and you say, we didn't make any concessions, although people 100% did. That's how politics works. That's how entertainment works as well. You're dealing with a product. You're telling people, oh, it's not going to be, you know, we didn't do anything. And behind the scenes, you're doing it. Now, with politics, you're kind of lying and you shouldn't be lying. With entertainment, you're kind of selling it and it's kind of more accepted that way. But but this, this happens all over. So he wasn't doing anything new necessarily. However... It is nowadays, this is common practice with people. Um, it, it's, it's really interesting. So we, we, have, we are out of time. We haven't even hit RKO, um, which is important. <laughs> he, he buys a studio, one of the big five studios. Um, do you have time to stick around? Can, can we talk about another 15 minutes and talk about his time as RKO chief? Absolutely. Okay. You've you got to hear this. The RKO is really where this kind of ramps up and where he essentially gets hires his army to go after the censors and, and change the industry. Uh, so we're gonna you're gonna stick around. We're gonna talk about that. Um, an incredible book. So people can find your book. How can people find you? The, the book is called Howard Hughes and the Creation of Modern Hollywood. And how can people get a hold of you if they want to get in touch? Uh, the book is available on all major retailers. Uh, just you know, do a quick Google search and you'll be able to see it um, put out through America by America through time. Font Hill Media was the one that uh, produced it. Um, and again, it looks at all of these issues and more focuses specifically on Hughes's tenure as a motion picture producer and studio mogul. Um, and uh, I am currently the director of operations at the Southern Museum of Civil War and Locomotive History in Kennesaw, Georgia, outside Atlanta, and uh, would look forward to talking about the, the book more. And, um, you know, Again, I, I think it's a, an overlooked and under un, misunderstood part of American history that I think is very exciting. I agree as well. Do you do Twitter, Facebook, anything like that? No, you know I'm a luddite when it comes to those things, so <laughs> I, I do not have uh, I, I do not have either. I don't do many of that. Oh, no, fair enough. I'll put some of the contact information up. Uh, great book, insightful, and I recommend everyone stick around. Uh, check out the bonus episode. It's on Patreon. We're going to uh, talk about RKO, him buying one of the major five studios. We're just hitting the major part here. Um, Jeffrey Richardson, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you love the show, please subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and now Spotify. And of course, we got a bonus episode. We've got tons of other bonus episodes on our Patreon page. Where can you find all this stuff? The Fascinating Nouns webpage fascinatingnouns.com you can scroll to the bottom we got a newsletter you can once again as i mentioned sign up for our patreon account you can also find us on social media twitter facebook instagram pinterest and youtube all that's at the bottom of the page and if you like the show you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening end of transmission